say this is non-acceptable. Will you say that stat because I actually remember seeing that stat and and feeling like this is the most compelling piece of data I've ever encountered in right. my life. So if you're hit by a car going 40 miles an hour, there's a 70% chance you'll die. If you're hit by a car going 30 miles an hour, there's an 80% chance you'll live. And so we're engineering people back into the equation, right? right? Because we're not just engineering runways for cars. You know, you see the light and it's like, prepare for takeoff. It's What's the Point from 538. My name is Jody Avergan. On this week's episode, former New York City Transportation Commissioner Jeanette Sadiq Khan. She helped transform the way New Yorkers get around and transformed their relationship to the city with a number of ambitious and often very controversial projects. And at each step along the way, data played a role. But before we talk about local urban planning, let's go to national political bickering. It's a number that caught our eye this week, the significant digit. Excuse me, can I talk to you after you get your uh, your ice cream cone? Come on, everything's... Look, it's bold to get ice cream before noon on a weekday. I'm on vacation. It has to happen. (laughs) So, can I tell you a number? Sure. Okay, so the number is 14 which is the number of Republican candidates there are in the race right now. Okay, that's pretty high. First of all, I don't know 14 of them. I'm registered Democrat, so I would pay attention more to our candidates. What's the number of Republicans they would have to get down to for you to be like, okay, I can pay attention now? (laughs) I guess I would say until there's some pretty well-broadcast debates, like five That's pretty much my ADHD uh, dictating (laughs) how many I can keep track of. 14 seems high to her. 14 seems pretty high to me as well. Harry Enten, political writer for 538 and a friend of the podcast. Uh, Can you put that number, 14, in context? Well, first off, shalom, Jody. Um, Yes, I can put that in context. I'm going to put in context in terms of serious candidates. You know, talking governors, senators, federal office, vice president. And when we look at those, we're going to have about 13 candidates as long as John Kasich and Scott Walker get into the race. I went back and I looked at the numbers of, quote unquote, serious candidates. It turns out 13 is the largest number ever. There was 10 in 1972 and 11 in 1976. And maybe I'm just sort of writing this memory into my head, but I feel like in the last cycle, there were these debates where they were like they couldn't fit all the Republicans onto the stage, but it wasn't as high as 13 ever. No, it was never as high as 13. In fact, if, if you know, if we're thinking of the most recent years where they were having real problems fitting people onto the stage, 2008 with the Democrats when we had eight people running and fitting on this debate stage. And this year, we're going to have so many problems just getting these candidates on the stage. We're going to be dealing with polling cutoffs. And the whole thing is just nuts. <laughs> it is. And what about her comments? Her name, by the way, Chantel Gaskin. Uh, what about her comments about when she's going to start paying attention? Do we have any sense of when people start to actually tune in? You know, it's kind of difficult to understand when people say they tune in, when they actually tune in. But we know from the last primary back in 2012 on the Republican side that the polling errors were very, very high right up until the very end of the campaign within the final five days. People were only paying attention right at the very end of the campaign. And presumably a Republican in Iowa is paying a little more attention than someone like her who's a Democrat in New York. Sure. I mean, you know, in Iowa, New Hampshire, you know, the old joke in New Hampshire is – 
oh, I can't decide on that candidate. I haven't met them yet. Right. You know, we talk about politics. I talk about politics all the time. But most people have lives. They're going out. You know, they're shopping. They're trying to feed their kids. They're trying to put food on the table. They don't Well, if, it, if you're in New Hampshire, uh, almost all of your meals are with one of the 14 candidates taking you out to a diner. Right, of course. You know, I mean, that's part of the reason I wish we had the first primary in New York. I wouldn't have to pay for food because I'm so cheap. Uh, Harry Enton, we're going to talk a lot more and a lot more in depth over the next 16 months, I'm sure. But thanks for doing this right now. I look forward to it. This is Jody Evergan with 538 Podcast. Joining us in our New York City studio is Jeanette Sadek Khan, former New York City Transportation Commissioner under Mayor Michael Bloomberg. Under her watch and under the Bloomberg administration, the city transportation landscape changed dramatically. Hundreds of miles of bike lanes, pedestrian plazas, rapid bus transit, and all of it very much data-driven. So, Commissioner, welcome to 538. Thank you. Great to be here. So I imagine for most transportation commissioners, there's like the devil and the angel sitting on their shoulder. <laughs> One is Robert Moses, cars, 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 and the other is Jane Jacobs, mm-hmm. sidewalks, streets. How did you see your role in, in balancing those two competing forces? Well, I think that New York City had a lot of opportunity to play off the legacy that Robert Moses left with extremely wide streets uh, (laughs) and extremely uh, wide bridges. And it allowed us to kind of repurpose that real estate and update it for the 21st century. So we brought Jane Jacobs strategies onto the Robert Moses grid. And so that combination was extraordinarily powerful in leveraging the power of our streets in new ways. And so that was the paradigm shift that we had. It was not an intersection-by-intersection approach. It really was an overall vision. So we're a data-driven website. We can get a little wonky with numbers. How did data play a part in, in, in shaping that vision? Well, traffic planning for you know the last 50 years has really been much more about guesswork than science. And when you think about it, planners were really looking at a roadway as a way to move cars as fast as possible. And they did, sort of did a little bit of math. They looked at the number of cars on a road, and then they said, voila, uh, this is what we need to do to change our streets. And it was always more is better. And it was more is better, wider roads, more roads. And 60 years later, you know, we're stuck in congestion all the same. So that strategy really didn't work. And so uh, that's because the older models really didn't account for the multi-dimensional aspect of our streets. Our streets are about people, not just about cars. And New York City had a, a lot of opportunity to play off the legacy that Robert Moses left with extremely wide streets uh, <laughs> and extremely r- wide bridges. And it allowed us to kind of repurpose that real estate and update it for the 21st century. So we brought Jane Jacobs' strategies onto the Robert Moses grid. We needed to look at ways to move people differently. We needed to be able to identify the gaps in our transportation network. And we needed to be able to measure the effect of our work. And so we had this very numbers-crunching instinct, you know, at New York City DOT, which was really a part of, you know, took a page from Mayor Bloomberg, who was all about his motto was, you know, believe in God, everybody else bring data. Uh, This reached every level of city government. Sure. So what were some of the... specific data points that would sort of make you perk up or get you excited or get you depressed that, you know, is it 
traffic speed or uh, the number of pedestrians on a sidewalk? Well, it's a really interesting point because we really had had a two-dimensional view of our streets instead of a three-dimensional view of our streets. You know, and the perfect example of that is is, uh, you don't have to go further than sort of Times Square to take a look at what the impact that data had Mm -hmm. uh, on how we ended up running the city. And, you know, when I first brought the idea of closing Times Square to cars to Mayor Bloomberg, you know, sort of a big (laughs) idea, to his credit, he didn't blink. You know, what we went through the plan and he just wanted proof that it was going to work. And when you think about it, you know, New York City is on a grid system, north, south, east, west. It's the most efficient way to move vehicles through a system. Broadway is this old Indian path and it cuts through the grid, you know, on a diagonal path. And everywhere it crosses the grid, it creates three way intersections instead of two-way intersections. And so and it weird angles. Weird angles. And weird spaces. Right. And, so, and drivers have three series of lights to get through instead of two. And so every time Broadway crossed the grid, it created, you know, it was more like a bottleneck rather than a boulevard. So, you know, people tried different things, changing mm-hmm. lights, slip lanes, all this kind of stuff. And the big idea was to take Broadway out of the grid. Let's see how it works if we restore the grid to the way that it was supposed to operate, which meant closing Broadway to cars. So it was a big idea. And, um, you know, the traditional way of measuring whether it was going to work or not was to have cars kind of go through before and after. And I remember pitching this to Mayor Bloomberg, and I was talking to him about the modeling that we were going to do because he wanted this proof point, And he was really skeptical. But fortunately, we actually had a new data set. All New York City taxis, all 13,000 yellow taxis, have uh, GPS devices. So we were actually able to use the new GPS devices to record what was happening in Times Square, right? It was like this instant uh, traffic analysis data point. Right. And so, you know, not surprisingly, you know, people said when we were going to do this, it's going to be Carmageddon, blood on the streets, the theaters are going to all shut down. Did you just stop looking at the cover of the post at that point? I did that stop. Happening? I did stop looking at the post. You talked about taking it off the grid, but what, what, what does that actually look like? Okay, so from 42nd to 47th Street, you have, you know, the north, south, east, west streets. And Broadway cut through the grid, mm-hmm. you know, through that section. So we closed Broadway to cars all the way through that and restored the north, south, east, west connections and created these plazas all through Times Square. So two and a half acres, like a couple of football fields for right. ESPN purposes, <laughs> of new public space for pedestrians. You know, people didn't go to Times Square to watch the traffic. People went to Times Square, the crossroads of the world, you know, to see the people, to to see the scene. watch ads on giant video billboards. (laughs) Yes, we know. Uh, But no, but there's now outdoor seating. uh, Restaurants can put out tables. But it's basically the cars have to go around and there's this sort of protected green space. It's green because the concrete is painted green, but it's basically green space inside of Times Square. Well, it's a really interesting piece because when we first put it down, it was a test, right? We were going to pilot it to see if it worked. And, you know, the mayor was very strong. Mike Bloomberg was very strong about we're going to see if it works. We're going to check out the safety, travel times, what happens to buses, what happens to business. If it works, we'll keep it. And if it doesn't work, we'll put it back. How do you do that when you're talking about infrastructure? How do because you test we, something out yeah. when you're talking about a road or a sidewalk? Well, so we did it in temporary m- material. So we blocked it off. We painted it. We put down tables and chairs and planters and stones. And actually, it was a really interesting story because we thought we had done all of our homework, right? We'd done all the testing. We'd done all the stuff. And then we closed it. The night we closed Broadway, we put out the orange barrels. You know, we're looking at the space. And we realize, oh, my 
God, we forgot to put something in there. So we went to Pinchick Hardware Store and no bought way. thousands of beach chairs. Oh, and right. we put all those beach chairs down in Times Square. And it was really interesting. You know, forget about the data. Forget about the project that we'd close Times Square to cars. The only thing people could talk about was the beach chair. I feel like people would have brought their own beach. New Yorkers are pretty good about any <laughs> space. They will occupy it. It's true. But what we so we did it in temporary materials and we could see. Then we measured whether it worked or whether it didn't. How long would you give yourself to do that measurement? I mean, what kind six of data months. did you need to come back? Six months. Yeah, six months. And we did a six-month report, came in on all the indicators. Uh, it was called Green Light for Midtown because the project was really just as much about congestion relief you know, in the densest part of the city as much as it was creating this great new public living room. You know, the interesting piece was is with this data, we were actually able to show that, you know, we had expected there'd be safety benefits because when you think about it, 90% of the people that went through Times Square on any given day were on foot and only 10% were driving. And yet, you know, 90% of the road space... And those people are distracted, and they're, they're distracted. not familiar with the city. They're and, you looking know, at their cell phone. Well, and you've walked through Times Square before, yes. right? You know, the tourists are like four abreast, and they're looking up, and they're going slow. Right. And you just... So New Yorkers, we can't stand it. We start to vibrate, you know? We've <laughs> got to get through. We've got to get through. So we would run into the street, you know, to get around. And that's what created all of the danger. So... We thought it would be better for safety. We thought it was going to be better for travel because we could restore the grid in terms of getting through one of the most congested parts of the city. And in fact, afterwards, that's what it showed. The data showed us that injuries to motorists went down 63% because the streets were more clearly defined. You know, injuries to pedestrians went down 35%. Traffic worked better on 6th Avenue by 15%. So that's actually something to linger on. There's this weird paradox of sometimes when you close streets, traffic moves faster. Right. There's this notion of traffic calming, too, which is let's try and engineer a little less so that the streets become a safer space. Is that is that? Well, I would look at it a little bit differently. I mean, that's the right concept, but... We're engineering people back into the equation, right? right? Because we're not just engineering runways for cars to go as quickly as possible where they're just like a speedway. You know, you see the light and it's like prepare for takeoff. And so it's really an interesting model. The other piece was is that the economic development benefits, not really what you would think of as part of traditional transportation planning and engineering. The economic development benefits were completely off the charts. We saw retail rents triple in under five years. We saw six new major stores move in. So these better streets are better for business. This is an element in the bike lane debate, too. People claimed that putting in a bike lane, getting rid of parking spaces would be a killer for local business right people couldn't drive to local shops but you're saying that that didn't happen it didn't prove out we measured the impact of our project so uh, on our first protected bike lanes, I don't know if you've ridden them on 8th and 9th Avenue there. I have ridden them. What we saw is that retail sales went up 49%, you know, versus 3% on a borough-wide basis, 49% on these avenues. Does that mean people are biking to shop? Or yeah. Or it just means that something else is changing about the landscape? It means uh, several things. You know, there's several data points here. It means that, you know, people spend more per capita walking and biking than they do by driving. You know, you, you're driving somewhere, you're, first of all, hunting around mm-hmm. 15 minutes for a parking spot 
And it's just much easier to pop into a store. You know that when you're riding your bike down the lane, it's like, oh, that's kind of a cool store. I think I'm going to go there. And so that really had huge benefits uh, to the bottom line of these businesses along the corridor. And it was counterintuitive. You know, you would think that if you lose parking, you're going to lose business. In fact, we found that the reverse was through. But you're going to lose true. parking ticket revenue. Did you ever get pushback on that front? No, you know, we didn't. The The issue really was more we went door to door on each one of these projects, probably the most comprehensive public outreach ever done to to make sure that we were taking into account, you know, the needs of local businesses. And the interesting piece, you know, as part of these innovations and updating streets, you know, to meet mm-hmm. the needs of today, is that a lot of the signage, a lot of the regulations actually hadn't been updated in 25, 30 years. And so we were able to update, you know, new delivery windows, move parking, you know, to different places. And that helped, I think, ease the way through on these uh, new projects. So you actually did some things also to just improve driving as well and driving through Midtown if there's part of your brain that thinks that's a good idea. There were actually some plans that you put in place to improve traffic flow through those areas. Absolutely. There's nothing worse than being stuck in traffic in Midtown and you just feel like there's no hope in sight. And so we tried a program where we used microwave sensors, easy pass readers and cameras to see what was going on with traffic in real time. And then what we did is we synchronized the lights so that we actually were able to adjust our traffic lights to deal with real-time congestion. Um, it was a big success. Travel times improved by some 10%, and now it's being expanded. So that's not even a sort of infrastructure problem. That's just a matter of having the computing data and the power to recognize this problem and, and, and implement. I mean, that's just about technology. Right? It is about technology. And again, instrumenting our streets, you know, sort of making them 21st century equipped. You know, when you think about it, it's almost like, you know, our previous approaches have been like through a sort of dial-up modem instead of, you know, Google Fiber. And now we're bringing a much more sophisticated uh, approach to managing our streetscape. London shut off much of its downtown to cars, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Was that ever something that in the back of your head you said maybe we could do that? Well, we did look at the pedestrianization of lower Manhattan. And I do think that that's something that needs to happen uh, without question. I would also like to have seen... That means no cars, Lower Manhattan? Yeah. You know, you'll have certain links that are there, but basically pedestrianizing the oldest part of the city. So how many miles of bike lanes came in under your watch? Uh, Almost 400. I had this vision of you and your team with like a huge map of the city on the table and looking over it with a... Big magic marker and saying, okay, we're going to lay a bike lane down this road and we're going to lay a bike lane down this road. And what was the actual process of deciding where the bike lanes would go and how they would connect to each other? You thought I was like Robert Moses in a skirt, just, you know, doing the same thing. Well, I'm curious. What were you, you know, what were the tools that you were using to see how they would connect and where they would be placed? On the the bike lanes, there was a, a master plan, you know, a bike master plan. And so... That was certainly the starting point. But one of the things that we really felt strongly about was the need to create a biking backbone, a connected network Mm -hmm. of lanes. You know, in the past, what you had is like a bike lane here, a bike lane there. You know, you'd be riding in a lane and then it would suddenly end and you'd be dumped unceremoniously into... It's happened to me. It's one of the most kind of like dispiriting and scary things to happen is feel like, okay, this city is working in my favor. And then all of a sudden... Exactly. I'm back in the wilderness. So we look to fill the gaps. You know, we, we provided much better connections across the bridges. We set up a very innovative protected bike lane network. It's the 
first uh, protected bike lane in the country. But deciding to put a bike lane on this north-south street versus this north-south street. Connectivity. Connectivity. And is that by looking at a map and modeling it? Or are you going out and walking it and and having people bike it and say, okay, I think it should be one block over? It's a combination. It's a combination. There's no one way to do it. You certainly start with the fundamentals, you know, on the map and, and trying to connect the network. And you're also working very closely with communities, you know, that are demanding this. And so there were a lot of communities that felt like they'd been lost in time. You know, they've been asking for this for many, many years. And for too long, the Department of Transportation had been the Department of No. You know, you ask for something, no, 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 it doesn't meet the MUTCD, the Manual on Uniform Control Devices. And so the standard that just basically, you know, was this permission slip for no instead of a permission slip for yes. So we flipped that and we worked with communities and asked them, what are the, what are the problems that you're trying to solve? There were neighborhoods saying we want a bike lane here yeah there were neighborhoods saying we want safer streets we want a bike lane we need a bus lane you know, we'd like to have some green space to walk around in there's at least one instance i can think of where a community was not very happy about a bike lane uh, and you removed a bike lane is that right you you painted over a bike lane on bedford avenue in brooklyn was that your call uh, it was a call of the department yes yeah, certainly my call but what we did was in that instance there was also a much better connection on Kent. And so we were able to meet the concern of the community and also provide a much better alternative connection. But that was an example of a community feeling, you know, for lots of complicated reasons, like... There was a big part of the community that said they didn't want girls in flirty skirts right. going through this, you That know, was the line in the media was that the right. Hasidic community in that neighborhood right. did not want people from Williamsburg in quote-unquote flirty skirts riding their bikes right. through their neighborhood right. and that's why they got it painted over right is that was that an unfair characterization no no that's went? that was that was certainly the media's characterization of how it went but but was you know, that an unfair characterization well i think what really the went? thing that's very difficult is the media likes to you know fixate on controversy there's certainly a, a cultural change associated with updating your streets you know and when you think about it you understand it, and we listened, and we tailored our projects accordingly. But make no mistake, you put down bike lanes and you remove parking, you know, there's going to be controversy that's there. But you have to update your streets. You can't leave them frozen in time. Our streets were basically in suspended animation for 50 years, and we had to update this resource in order to continue to grow and thrive. Let's talk about that as a, as a sort of cultural issue the bike lanes but transportation in general you know i think it really is a sort of cultural clash issue in many ways it's about adding infrastructure but also about changing culture i mean when i worked at a local public radio station here our list of the most contentious issues it was like and i this i'm not exaggerating here it was like israel palestine and bike lanes well actually you know that was you could combine the two (laughs) in the prospect park west bike lane controversy where one brooklyn paper said that this bike lane next to this park was the most contested piece of asphalt outside of the Gaza Strip. But why is that culture clash so hard? And was it surprising to you at the level of vitriol that you would get when talking about bike lanes? You know, you change the, you know, my brother said to me when we were at the heat of this, you know, controversy, he said, you know, the scouts get the arrows. So you shouldn't be surprised that people are going to come after you. But at the end of the day, what we ended up seeing was people, first of all, voted with their pedals. They were out there. We saw cycling quadruple 
over 10 years. And the risk to cyclists was down 75%. So, you know, there was a safety in numbers effect associated with this. And the polling that was done at the end of the Bloomberg administration showed that 64% of New Yorkers supported the bike lanes. So you saw in a short period of time a big sea change, and I think it's because people really saw the reality of what that meant on the streets. I recently visited Montreal and I rented a bike. You know, within 30 seconds of biking around in Montreal, I just got this impression that, oh, here's a city whose bike culture is like five years ahead of us. Mm-hmm. You know, they're just a little more advanced. And you can just tell in the way that people interact with each other on the street, the way that bikers respect cars and cars respect bikers and mm-hmm. pedestrians don't jump out in front of bikes, which is a huge problem here it's in huge. New York. How far behind do you think New York is on that timeline? And do you feel like the culture changed at a rate that you were satisfied with? We're certainly, you know, we're five years behind them. We haven't, they launched five years earlier, you know. So I think that New Yorkers have really quickly adapted to it. And, And it's not only New York City. The thing that's interesting to me is how bike share and biking has taken off globally. There's 700 cities now globally that have bike share, 700,000 bikes. And so bike share and bike lanes have really become the mark of a world-class city. And that is a real sea change in transportation. And it's made our streets safer because these aren't bikes that you ride in the Tour de France. You know, these are heavy bikes. They're like 45 pounds, you know. So you're riding them kind of slowly. You're enjoying the city. And drivers also look out. You know, they see that there's a city bike rider mm-hmm. there, and they, and they drive a little more slowly. And so I think it's really tamed some of our meaner streets. The culture change you know, will continue to evolve. I mean, it's not like we're at Copenhagen, right? And we never will be Copenhagen because we're New Yorkers. You know, we're, it <laughs> is not, jerks. we're not, yeah. Well, actually, that was the name of the safety campaign that we put together. Was what? Um, was, it was a cycling education campaign. It was called Don't Be a Jerk. Don't Be a Jerk, right. Yeah. So we're, we're New York. We're never going to be anything but New York and we shouldn't be. One of the criticisms of the way that we treat biking uh, in this city is that, you know, you can wait for the cultural shift and there's this understandable sort of time that it takes for people to get used to all these different elements back on the streets. But for instance, you know, we don't aggressively ticket cars that park in bike lanes. Mm -hmm. Uh, How much is the change going to come from sticks instead of carrots? Well, I obviously believe enforcement's a really big part of the equation. And so you can engineer streets differently you can you know educate about streets differently enforcement's a really important part of it and all of that is really fundamental to changing the how they feel about biking around whether they feel about walking around or driving around and it's sort of interesting because one of the most important ways that we use data was on safety you know you've got 6000 miles of streets in new york city and, you know, some of them really, really dangerous. But there had been no way to kind of identify where the really dangerous pinch points were. And mm-hmm. so uh, we did this pedestrian safety and action plan study where we looked at 7,000 crashes and looked at the KSI, the number of people killed or seriously injured, over an eight-year period of time. And it gave us who was being hurt, where they were being hurt, why they were being hurt, when they were being hurt. And 
it actually became our sort of Rosetta Stone of safety and allowed us to pinpoint where we needed to make change and direct our resources using that data to more effectively design our streets. So using that model, we redesigned 250 uh, intersections and corridors. And the exciting piece to me is to see that strategy continuing on under Mayor de Blasio's Vision Zero program. Again, so this is a goal to have zero pedestrian deaths in New York City. Right. And was that something you feel like you could have had as a goal when you were transportation commissioner? Well, our goal was to basically cut it in half. And so we use the, again, the study to start to make these interventions that got us to a point where we had the safest streets in 100 years. One death is too many. Uh, and, you know, traffic fatalities are a global public health crisis. It's like number nine on the list of global killers. Is zero an unrealistic number? You know, you have to set goals. And, and I'm really a big believer in setting big, audacious, ambitious goals. And so I think that as a goal, it's fantastic, and it drives the resources accordingly. You know, today, Mayor de Blasio announced it's $250 million for Vision Zero. You know, putting it under an umbrella, branding it, is a really important way of getting the message across that we won't tolerate this anymore. And it was the exact same strategy that we had under Mayor Bloomberg. I mean, we had the hit by a car going 40 miles an hour, you know, 70% chance you'll die, 30 miles an hour, 80% chance you'll live. Again, doing everything you can to say this is not acceptable. Will you say that static? Because I actually remember seeing that stat and, and feeling like this is the most compelling piece of data I've ever encountered in right. my life. So if you're hit by a car going 40 miles an hour, there's a 70% chance you'll die. If you're hit by a car going 30 miles an hour, there's an 80% chance you'll live. And so, you know, that little bit of difference goes a long way. And it goes back to the importance of calming our streets and sort of making them a little softer around the edges for people. The data also showed us what wasn't dangerous on the streets. And cyclists weren't dangerous on the streets. In fact, meaning they were not causing... right accidents of their own. The more cyclists on a street, the safer a street was. And in fact, we found that uh, streets with bike lanes were 40% safer for pedestrians. And you don't require, you didn't require, and the city still does not require people to wear bike helmets. No. Why? Well, every system that's required bike helmets has been a failure. And basically, it's the same amount of risk as you and I have uh, walking around the streets of New York. So if you want to mandate that pedestrians should wear bike helmets, then, you know. But being on a bike isn't more dangerous no, because than Because people are, people in the are, same road. People are car. riding slowly. And so you're not, you're not speeding down. And what we've seen, too, is that cars slow down when they see a cyclist out there. So there's a safety in numbers effect. The more cyclists that are out there, the safer the streets are. So the easier you can make it for cycling, the safer our streets are. And is there a are. false sense of security when you strap on a helmet? I mean, if you're not wearing a helmet, is it weird? No, I mean, I encourage wearing? everybody to wear helmets. I'm, you know, I wear a helmet when but I'm out there. But I saw you tweet recently about, what was it, uh, bike helmets and uh, neon vests and all these other things, which I think you said were kind of st- stupid ideas for bike. Well, I think you've got a lot of, uh, there are some states that are passing some regressive bike laws, like, you know, eliminating insurance for people who are biking, you know, mandating neon vests for biking, helmets for biking, because that all discourages people from biking. And so, you know, you want to encourage people. It's better for your city. It's safer for your city. If you want to build a better city, you can really start by building a bike lane. What's next for you? Are you uh, are you consulting now? Are you going to try and get back into politics? 
Um, I'm consulting now with Mayor Bloomberg. We've got a, we formed a company, Bloomberg Associates, where we're working with cities around the world to, you know, improve the quality of life for people in these cities. Mayors are really hungry uh, for new strategies to make their uh, cities stronger and better. All right, Jeanette Sadekan, thank you for joining us. Thank you. That's it for this week. What's the Point's editor is Chadwick Matlin. Our video producer is Ryan Nantel. 538's podcast and video intern is Asta Chaturvedi. Joel Werner helped mix and produce this episode. My name is Jody Evergan. You can reach me by email. Find my address at 538.com slash podcasts. I'm on Twitter at Jody Avergan. Our music is by Rishikesh Hirway, who also hosts the Song Exploder podcast, Go subscribe right now. If you like What's the Point, subscribe using your favorite podcast client and give us a rating and a review in iTunes. It really does help others discover the show. Thanks for listening. See you soon. Listener.